Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. If you've been trying to read more these days, then this is the episode for you. My guest is author Nick Rapatrizone, whose latest book is titled Longing for an Absent God, Faith and Doubt in Great American Fiction. In the book, Nick explores how two major strands of Catholic writers, practicing and cultural, intertwine and sustain each other. We talked in depth about Nick's three absolute favorite authors he writes about, Flannery O'Connor, Don DeLillo, and Toni Morrison. I also asked Nick to play book concierge. I gave him seven moods and asked him to pick a book for each. My reading list is filling up fast. If our conversation makes you want to talk literature with Mr. Rapatrizone himself, you're in luck. Nick is the facilitator of our online Jesuit book club. Our selection for May is the novel Mariette in Ecstasy by Ron Hansen. You can get more information and sign up to participate at jesuits.org slash book club. Thanks for joining us. Well, Nick Rapatrizone, thanks so much for coming on AMDG. How are you today? I'm, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. I want to do a couple of things on the, the show with you today. I want to promote our Jesuit book club. You've signed on to facilitate our, our Jesuit book club. We've gotten through one book, uh, Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. We're going to keep it rolling with an online uh, discussion of another book, and we'll, we'll get into that later and tell folks how they can get involved. But first, I, I want to talk to you about your own book, a book that came out just this past March, uh, called Longing for an Absent God, Faith and Doubt in Great American Fiction. So first of all, congratulations on the publication of a book. I was saying before we started recording that it is, there's so like so much richness there, there so many details, bringing together work of, of so many different authors. It must've just been a huge lift for you. And so like to have that out in the world must be like a pretty exciting and a relief too, in some ways. Yeah, thank you. It, it's, um, when it book came out, you know, it, it was the early uh, weeks of kind of the shift in life. Um, during the, the coronavirus. And um, it was a book that, you know, like a lot of other books that came out early in the year, uh, you know, we had so many things on our minds um, that it, it was nice to see the reception to it and, and people being um, interested in, in Catholic writing, Catholic uh, literature. And uh, even though we have so many other things that we were, you know, justifiably um, thinking about and concerned with. So, um, the book started off as uh, some individual independent essays. Uh, over the years, I'd been writing about uh, Catholic literature for mostly secular magazines, uh, places like The Atlantic and Paris Review and Rolling Stone. And uh, I noticed that there was a considerable interest in Catholic storytelling, even from people who weren't conventional believers in Catholicism. And I thought that was pretty revealing uh, and, and something that would be worth pursuing more towards a, in a book project. Um, so as you mentioned, it, it was a lot of research and a lot of rereading, going back to the stories and the lives of these writers and their correspondence and trying to get a sense of how they were formed as Catholics. And it was something I enjoyed because the list I had of writers originally was was quite long and and you know for a book like this you can't have like 20 writers you have to winnow it down a little bit uh, but when i made my final choices i was happy with how kind of the writers work together in, in, in sort of the thesis of, of the book um, and i'm trying to show how 
both practicing and elapsed Catholic writers share some sort of a power of Catholic storytelling that appeals to a pretty wide um, and diverse audience. So you talk about Catholic literature, Catholic writers. I don't know. I feel like I have a feeling when I hear those words or like Catholic imagination about what that means, but I'm not sure if I can always articulate it clearly. So if you think about that, like what makes writers Catholic as you're exploring them and writing about them uh, in this book, like what are some of the signs to you that like writers are Catholic, whether they're practicing or, or not? There's, in a way, there's no template for being a Catholic writer. Um, but there are, as you kind of mentioned, some kind of touchstones or uh, telltale signs that somebody who is Catholic would probably be able to pick out when they're reading a work by a Catholic writer. I would say the first one is a comfort with ambiguity and a sense of mystery in their writing. Um, they are, they're okay dealing with material where there are no direct or maybe even correct answers. Um, at the same time, I would say that Catholic writers tend to typically write about the big ideas, good versus evil, and they take those ideas uh, seriously and sincerely. So while other writers might write about those things, um, even in a Catholic sense, when, when Catholic writers like Thomas Pynchon have parodies, there's a certain earnestness behind them. And that's certainly a tradition in Catholic literature. Um, Catholic writers also tend to be very interested in the body, the physical body as an outward representation uh, of the soul. And Toni Morrison is someone that is uh, a big part of my book, and she's someone who captures this idea of um, the physicality of their narratives. And what I like to tell people when I try to explain um, even the difference within Christianity between Catholic and Protestant writers is that Catholic writers tend to really think of the crucifix rather than the cross. You know, they don't think of just the wood as a representation of that moment. They think of the body of Christ, the physicality of it, and the sense of kind of palpable um, suffering, uh, humanity of, of, of God in that moment. Um, so when you read Catholic writers, they might have all those things, they might have some of those things, um, but they tend to have those as the touchstones to their work. And even in some writers like Don DeLillo, who are lapsed Catholic, you can still hear the, the, the style and the sense of the liturgy and of, of prayer in their work. Um, so even though Catholic writers are diverse, those are some of the elements I think that they tend to share. As you're exploring that diversity in the book, you, again, kind of look at how right now anyway, in kind of contemporary fiction or the last maybe you know a few decades, there are, seem to be way more lapsed Catholics than folks who are actually practicing their faith, who, are, who have reached prominence uh, kind of in the, again, the broader world of literature, and maybe distinguishing that from like, say, the middle of the last century, uh, where we had like a number of these kind of active Catholics who are also participating in this world. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, like, that kind of at the core of your book, this difference and some, again, similarities between active and lapsed Catholics? Sure. Uh, lapsed Catholics, as you mentioned, um, are extremely well represented in the highest levels of, of literature in America. Um, Tony Morrison, the one Nobel Prize, um, Don DeLillo, Thomas Pynchon, Cormac McCarthy, uh, 
These are people who are at the top of lists, really, of fiction writers in America. Lapsed Catholics, I think, have they have a critical distance from the religion, but they also have a nostalgia for the religion. And that's a powerful artistic mix. Um, writers of all faiths or no faiths tend to draw from their formative years, even if they don't want to admit it. And lapsed Catholics, since they tended to be Catholic in practice or in schooling as children, um, they have a very rich pool to draw from. Um, you know, little kids can complain, you know, that mass is long or, you know, that it might be a little boring for them. But someone who raised Catholic, they remember the sights and the sounds and the emotions of mass. And it stays with you. And since for a lot of Catholic artists, and this even extends to someone like uh, Andy Warhol, who in a Byzantine Catholic church in Pennsylvania would be there for like six hours every Sunday, just staring at kind of the art behind the altar. It has a formative effect on you as a as an artist. So I think for that reason, lapsed Catholics, they have the distance and then the nostalgia, and it makes a powerful, um, a powerful sort of mixture for them as, as thinkers. You also write about a few, again, Catholics who have been committed through their, their writing. I'm thinking of uh, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, uh, some others who you mentioned, who though like struggle in some ways too with like, how do you represent, you know, the faith that they didn't want to be just kind of writing the devotional books. They wanted to be writing serious fiction with, with characters like, struggling with questions of faith and meaning. Um, so like, it seemed like they almost had like, they were bearing the weight almost even more uh, of the faith in like trying to wanting to represent, well, whatever they were, they were seeking to represent, but like not again, trying to like fall into the, the trap of writing like kind of sentimental, uh, just like kind of Catholic propaganda. So can you talk a little bit about how you've seen some of those writers who did have faith um, commitments kind of struggling through that uh, in their own work? Certainly. Flannery O'Connor, her letters are full of those kind of self-doubt. Um, is she going to be sort of a provincial writer, someone that no one will take seriously? She would talk about how uh, it wasn't until she was published in Esquire magazine that people in her community really took her seriously because they could see her at the, you know, on the newsstand. You know, she had made it as a writer. So she was always concerned with, you know, she was very much fully Catholic, but that nervousness that she wasn't writing things that an outside secular community would appreciate. So I think people like her and Walker Percy were acutely concerned with kind of the preaching to the choir result of a lot of Catholic art. Um, and and it's, it's interesting because people on the outside who aren't Catholic don't always have this or don't always understand this internal debate among Catholics, but it is something that, that exists. And what I saw in doing the book was the three main, I guess, you know, living Catholic, practicing Catholic writers of the book are Ron Hansen, who uh, we'll talk about more later, um, Alice McDermott, and uh, Phil Cly, who won the National Book Award for Fiction for his short story collection, uh, Redeployment, which is based partially on um, his time as a, as a Marine serving uh, after he left college. Those are people who are active practicing Catholics and who would be considered at the highest levels of 
American literature. And, you know, there's someone that I would also add to that list. You know, there's a lot of people who I, I, I didn't have space to cover in the book, but um, Chris Beha, who is the editor of Harper's Magazine, which is, you know, quite significant uh, magazine in America, is a, is a Catholic writer. And uh, he has an essay on Soren Kierkegaard and the new issue of the magazine that's fantastic. Um, and, and that's an example of Catholic writers being self-aware of the criticisms of being too kind of inward focused and, and, and sentimental, and then becoming almost double as powerful writers because they, they can transcend those criticisms. And I think uh, those are, you know, this is just a small list, but those are some significant names in, in, in American literature at the moment. There were some quotes of Walker Percy's that I think kind of really got to this that you include in in your book. Again, someone who is like a convert and not entirely comfortable with that as as um, uh, as, um Graham Greene was as well. Uh, again, like comes to it, but like never quite quite at home. And even he, I think he quotes Joyce Walker Percy to say like or referring to Joyce that he the you know Christian novelist has to practice his art in cunning and in secrecy and achieve his objective by indirect methods. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. that struck me. And then also when Percy talking about his own, uh, conversion, he said, you know, he, he was at Columbia medical school and, uh, was friends with two Catholics who went to mass and would hang quote, one of those garish Catholic calendars on the wall that struck me as outrageous. Percy says, I was offended by Catholicism. The offense is part of the clue, of course, part of the secret. Uh, what, what do you make of that quote? I love that quote. Yeah. I, I mean, Walker Percy, I'm so happy that we have a, a look into his life um, through his essays and his, his letters. He um, He's coming from this kind of consistent convert idea that we see in American and, and even in, in European literature. And Graham Greene was part of this, that the convert skepticism pre-conversion of Catholicism. And uh, in, in a lot of Protestant communities, um, Catholicism is, is an other, it's an oddity. It's something that doesn't make sense. Um, and it's certainly not true for all Protestants, but there is something going on there where you have a skepticism of Catholicism and it's kind of mysterious rituals and it's priests who can't get married. And there's a lot of stuff going on there they don't understand. So what Walker Percy, I think, captures here is a lot of times the things that confound us and maybe even revolt us capture us in some way. And when he looked at that, that, that sense of the people that he went to college with and, and their, their, their piety, um, it was something that he thought was a little trite and a little bit naive. And at the same time, it, it revealed to him something that he could not comprehend and a faith that he could not touch at the moment. And I think for a lot of people who are on the periphery of Catholicism, that's something that draws them closer is the idea of you you can be intellectual, you can be literary, you can be artistic and and remain Catholic. In fact, the, the two spheres are almost inextricable, I think, in, in many ways. Um, so the more that Percy became a Catholic, and he was definitely a sarcastic Catholic, um, the more that he became Catholic, the more I think he realized that his outside perception was ultimately the curiosity that drew him in. One thing I love about 
book is the way that you, again, kind of bring a lot of these people together and kind of put them in dialogue and show some similarities and differences uh, across this like really wide range of writers. I don't know exactly what the count is of, of writers you reference, but it's a few dozen, um, whether getting longer treatments or shorter ones. So one thing I wanted to do as a kind of thought experiment and to help us kind of really um, home in on just a few uh, of the writers that you, you mentioned and dig into, I wanted to ask you to pick kind of three, like to imagine that you only get to read work by three of these authors for the rest of your life and the rest of them you have to kind of leave to the side. Uh, luckily, again, this won't happen, but we're <laughs> going to imagine this as a way of just, again, talking about maybe three favorites, uh, ones who you just couldn't live without, who you really liked uh, digging into for this book. So who do you have? Who's your first one? That's a challenging question, but um, Flannery O'Connor would be my first one, mostly because I have never read a writer who allows me to return to them more and learn more when I go back. Um, she's one of those writers who you kind of think you've understood her and you think you know all that you need to know about her. And then you find a letter that she wrote to a friend um, about Telhard de Chardin and um, roosters and the full moon. Like she ran, she references the most random things and she makes some work in her, her own personal version of, of, uh, of interpreting the Catholic world, she never fails to surprise me as a reader. And I've been writing about her for years and reading her since college. And I would say that she's someone who's absolutely essential for, especially non-Catholics, as their introduction to a Catholic aesthetic, because it's important to note that Flannery O'Connor didn't really write about Catholics. She wrote about uh, people who were evangelical and, and, perhaps even literalist in their beliefs. And she tried to understand them and represent them in all of their eccentricities. So I would say that she's the first that I would love to kind of stay with her work for a long time. The second person, um, I would say Toni Morrison, um, partially because this book, at least in speaking with people who've, who've read it, that's one thing that has been really new information to them that Toni Morrison was a Catholic. It's something that she mentioned at points in her interviews and whenever she was introduced or talked about by the philosopher Cornel West, he would always say the Catholic writer Toni Morrison. But for some reason, even though she was a Nobel Prize winning writer, there's kind of this lack of knowledge of her Catholic background and beliefs. And I believe that her vision was actually radically Catholic in her fiction. And I've taught Beloved, um, her novel, every year for the last 16 years. And I keep on learning new things about her and learning new things about the Catholic imagination. Um, and I would say the last writer would be Don DeLillo. Um, part of that is, is I guess, uh, kind of ethnic and regional. My, my family's from the Bronx, um, Arthur Avenue, the same street where uh, DeLillo, I believe his family had a deli for some time, um, but he certainly spent a lot of time there. And then he went to Fordham, which was kind of at the end of that road. Uh, and he speaks to the Italian uh, Catholic experience, specifically the Sicilian um, Catholic experience. It's something that I I certainly understand growing up. But what's really fascinating about Don DeLillo is, you know, we live in a time 
of kind of conspiracy and isolation even before the pandemic. And that's really what all of Don DeLillo's books are about. Um, the difference between the individual enclosed in their room and the, the mass of world outside, um, the individual versus the crowd. And, you know, thinking now about how a lot of us haven't left, you know, where we live for a while, he feels like the kind of writer that I can kind of um, dig back into. Um, so I would say O'Connor, Morrison, and DeLillo are kind of my ultimate three that I would go back to again and again. It's a good draft picks. Those three solid. I guess you can't really, can't really go wrong with the folks you're writing about. I do want to just do a little bit on each of those just to get a, a little bit more of, of a sense of them and, and why they really grab you. So you mentioned O'Connor again, not writing about Catholics, mm-hmm. uh, writing in these often set in again, these rural places in the South where, where she was from. Where do you see her Catholic imagination coming through? What, when you read that, even though again, the subject matter is not quote unquote Catholic with very few exceptions. Um, where are you seeing that especially? Flannery O'Connor was very much attuned to and open to the strangeness and absurdity of life. And she actually thought that that was perfectly compatible with a Catholic worldview and a Catholic liturgical sense. Um, You know, when, when people think of religion and faith in America, and I think this is partially a cultural thing. Uh, a lot of times we think of it in very neutral or neutered terms, um, but it, you know, religion and Catholicism specifically is a is, is a rich, complicated, and you know, in the best way possible, I think, strange thing. It's it's, it's supposed to be different from our everyday life, um, and, and you know, for many years, obviously, the Latin Mass was a very literary example of that. But what Flannery O'Connor was able to capture was the oddities and absurdities of the people around her and herself included. So my favorite story of her, um, and it's tough to pick one, but Parker's back is a story about a man who falls in love with a woman who thinks that he's kind of a fool, but likes him and is intrigued by his tattoos, but also she's very much a literalist Christian. And she thinks that there's a certain sin in, in kind of getting all that ink on one's body. So he tries to go get a tattoo of uh, the face of Christ on his back. And it's a huge tattoo. He has to stay overnight in the local Christian mission while he get it done. Um, he comes back home, takes off his shirt, and he expects her to kind of fall in love with this uh, Christ tattoo since you know she's a believer. And she screams at him. And she smacks him with a broom. And she kicks him off the front porch. And she says that it's idolatry. And what's interesting is that O'Connor shows us that the literalist Christian character, his wife mistakes uh, icon, the Catholic tradition and the Christian tradition of iconography for idolatry. And it's that little theological misstep that makes a perfect dramatic moment in a story that is the reason why so many priests and nuns wrote and read about Flannery O'Connor, because it's hard to find a contemporary writer who is as theologically rich and and complex as she is. And it's just you know, even if you uh, if people sit down with her her letters, 
um, and her essays, you know, even before they go to her fiction, it's sort of a lifetime's worth of great Catholic reading. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. Let's turn to Toni Morrison uh, again, who, as you said, is not someone who uh, I think a lot of folks, at least I know I didn't like initially think of as, oh, they are obviously a Catholic writer, not something that uh, she wore on her sleeve a lot. Um, so yeah, I, in your book, I, I love how your chapter on her kind of starts with her reflecting on uh, the crucifix versus the cross, as you mentioned, and this kind of real incarnational faith and incarnational writing. And how do we see that play out uh, in, in her catalog? Well, Toni Morrison thought that Christ on the cross was an absolutely powerful incarnational metaphor for the lynching of blacks in the South. Um, the idea of the raised body, the public view, the extreme suffering, the physicality of it. And for her, that was the great American sin. And it was something that in a way was so horrific that it almost feels fictional. And yet we see the photos and we hear the stories. And what, Flan what, what Toni Morrison really wanted to do in her fiction was to document the, the sins that kind of predated us, but that we live with. And it all comes back really to slavery for her. So I would say if people haven't read Toni Morrison, a good place to start is Beloved, which is a, a really a horror novel, uh, but a horror novel that's filtered through a Catholic vision of the body. And we see that incarnational sense come through um, in, in that work. So I would say Toni Morrison's sense of the body is what makes her very much a Catholic writer. Hmm. Interesting. I'll have to pick that pick that one up for sure. Again, I feel like when she died uh, recently, there was this kind of whole, the, again, the, the memory and just kind of these, in some ways she, I think by becoming so prominent, like, I don't know, almost seems like kind of distant and like, oh yeah, yeah she's this figure who is uh, kind of lifted up, but not necessarily engaged with, uh, with, you know, on the page. And then especially with that, again, that, that context, that perspective of coming from someone who has a, a young child converted uh, to have that in the back of our minds when we maybe turn to her uh, work would be, uh, be really interesting. So yeah, I have to do that. Um, I, and then I want to get to Don DeLillo as well. So tell me some more, uh, about him. You did a little of his biography. What about his writing to you, um, strikes you as like, uh, something that you couldn't live without? Well, Don DeLillo grew up in the era of the Latin mass and, um, it, Latin mass is not something that I grew up with. It's not something that I knew of except through my parents. Um, and you have then this kind of archaic ceremonial feel to the Latin mass. And you have DeLillo who would describe church as theater. He thought it was theatrical, which is actually the same way, exact same term that Ron Hansen uses to describe Catholic mass, even though they're very different Catholics. So in his fiction, uh, DeLillo has almost Latin mass type cadences and syntax. And he makes references uh, to Jesuits constantly. Um, you know, DeLillo gave a speech at a Jesuit college a few years ago where he said that he graduated from uh, a Jesuit college in the 50s and, and he hasn't been able to 
kind of give up on them since. Like he's, you know, he's very much a Jesuit Catholic writer, even though he's lapsed. So one of his books that I absolutely love and that I always teach is his novel End Zone. It was his second book. It's a novel about college football. It's a satire. It's the best football book I've ever read, possibly the best sports book. It is so it's it's a love letter kind of to sports at the same time. It's a satire and it's critical of the college athletics world, of American views of race. And it's absolutely a Jesuit novel. Um, there's so much talk about, you know, if you read that book and you recognize that DeLillo studied the Alpha and the Omega, Deschardins, a lot of the, the, the Catholic thinkers, they come through in the language of these football players. So you have these football players who are, tackling each other into the ground. And then a few pages later, they're having these kind of philosophical discussions and debates. And I love that mix of athletics and, and the intellectual world. So DeLillo's books are unique and expansive. And, um, you know, besides Enzo, and I would say people uh, should certainly check out White Noise, uh, which is really a book that would hit home in what we're experiencing right now. Um, and he was certainly somebody who, even though his perhaps practicing Catholic days might have ended, um, you can hear the Catholic rhythms in his work. I appreciate your mentioning, uh, his Jesuit roots, since that leads us nicely into talking about what you and I are doing with uh, a whole bunch of folks out there around the world, which is uh, participating in a online book club, the Jesuit book club. We started it as a, a Lenten project and we read the power and the glory, uh, by Graham Greene. We decided to do this right before Lent started, um, and that was like I was as I was getting onto a plane. I was writing to you about this. Uh, obviously, not flying anymore. Just how things have crazily changed. So it was one example of like an electronic thing that we did that ended up being oh everyone's doing this now, look, finding stuff to do online. So we had a nice response to folks uh, reading that book. So we decided hey let's let's keep it going. Uh, let's read into the Easter season. Uh, so we're, we're going to do that. We're starting on, uh, well, we've started by the time this comes out, we have just started April 26th is the, the starting day officially, but there's plenty of time throughout kind of the month of May to join us. So if you're listening and are interested, you can go to jesuits.org slash book club to sign up uh, for information and to re register for um, our live gathering at the end of May, plus a, a Facebook group where Nick uh, graciously kind of leads us through conversation uh, on a kind of section of a book, the book at the at a time throughout the season. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the book we've picked for the the next run here, starting again, um, late April, um, Marriott and Ecstasy by Ron Hansen. Uh, so wh why do you think this book's a, a good choice uh, for the club? What about it? Um, do you like, so yeah, tell us a little bit about the book and a little bit about uh, the author, Ron Hansen. Ron Hansen is a historical novelist. His books have been made into uh well-known films. Um, he's also a deacon in the Catholic church um, in California. And, you know, it's interesting because he has that life that not a lot of people in the literary world know about, but he's uh, a fantastic writer whose 1991 novel, Marriott and Ecstasy, as you said, we were reading is one of the most uh, phenomenal novels I've ever read period, but certainly Catholic novels. Um, it kind of hit the literary world by storm and, uh, Everyone from the Village Voice to 
local diocese and newspapers basically said this is a work of genius. And I, it's, it's the most beautifully written book that I've ever read, sentence to sentence. It's almost like reading these monastic prayers. Um, so I think reading it is a spiritual action itself. Uh, but what is so powerful in addition to that is here we have a writer who is at the top of his literary game, sentence to sentence, writing about nuns, writing about a, a convent, writing about the most Catholic subject that you can imagine. And it's such a devotional work, but so skilled and so surprising of a book. And you know, when I was uh, kind of sharing online that we'd be reading this, you know, these writers come out of the woodwork, you know, these poets, um, who, who aren't even Catholic, who would say, you know, that that's an incredible book. It's a book that's kind of universally renowned. Uh, and, and I think as a Jesuit book club, as some, as we did, you know, last, last round with Power and the Glory, we can dig really into what's Catholic about these works and, and, and walk away from them as, as almost like a spiritual practice. And, you know, I think Marian Ecstasy is a kind of book that you can read like a page and kind of just like savor it. And, and it really does, I think, transformative things to people who are involved with it. So I, I can't wait to read it and, and talk about it with everyone. We had a great time uh, the first round as well. Yeah. So if you want to join us, please go to jesuits.org slash book club. You can get information about our live gathering. Join us in our Facebook group where Nick puts up really great questions that we can uh, respond to throughout the season or throughout the month, which I really love about this format is instead of just having the end of the reading time to discuss, uh, we discuss throughout uh, with these great quest questions Nick puts up. So jesuits.org slash book club, join us again, even though a few days late, you still have plenty of time to, to hop on for a Marry an Ecstasy. So this was, again, a book, Nick, that you had proposed as our next one. Um, I really appreciate your recommendations of novels and poetry. A lot of that you do online uh, through through Twitter, especially always putting out good recommendations. Uh, so I want you to kind of serve as book sommelier for our final section here. This is a little selfish of me. Uh, I have some more time at night nowadays since we're not doing anything. Um, looking to read some new stuff, get into some new stuff. So I have a, a handful of categories and I want you to make recommendations in those categories, if you would, uh, for things I might want to think about adding or, or folks listening might want to might want to pick up. So are you ready for that? Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So first category, something with an engrossing plot that like moves really fast. Plot wise, um, I love the novel The Quiet American by Graham Greene. Um, it's a very smart political thriller kind of about the perils of forced democracy. And uh, it's told in a non-traditional style where you kind of get the end and then you get the start and then you get the middle and he kind of jumps around. Um, for a Graham Greene novel, it, it's a heavy on plot book. Um, and I think reading that now, even though you know we're kind of removed from the, the Vietnam conflict that he wrote about, there's a lot of kind of prescience and, and intrigue in it as a, as a political thriller. So I would say that is a plot-based book to check out. Okay, great. Next category, uh, something just with mind-blowingly beautiful language. I have to go with Marian Ecstasy for this one. Um, it's, you know, I, in teaching poetry to students, I give them pages from that book and I just give them individual lines. So like if you can imagine a public school classroom in New Jersey reading sentences about nuns in 1906 like it has, it has absolutely beautiful descriptions of the world and, and interior kind of 
spiritual life. Uh, so that's uh, my recommendation for like a language based book. Perfect. So folks can join us uh, and have their minds blown by the beauty. Okay, number <laughs> yeah, exactly. number three. I know you're a, I know you're a horror fan. Uh, so recommend something like really terrifying uh, to distract me from other stuff that's also terrifying, but um, something like less real worldy, maybe. It's interesting because I I love horror films, um, and my horror novel reading list is relatively short. Uh, I would recommend, and I know a lot of people have seen the film, but I would recommend people read the actual novel, The Exorcist, uh, by William Peter Blatty, which he wrote while he, or which he conceived of and, and really based much of was on uh, his time at Georgetown. And I, I think what, what's powerful about the novel, um, and, and people might also check out The Ninth Configuration, which he envisioned as the sequel to uh, the Exorcist is when you read the book and, and you you read it without kind of the imagery in front of you, the possession takes kind of an interior feel, and I think it creates this powerful moment of, of kind of experiencing horror. So, on the other side of a coin, there, uh, how about something to lift my spirit? Brian Doyle, um, the late Brian Doyle, who's who's a who's a beautiful writer. Uh, of nonfiction and fiction. I would say, you know, One Long River of Song, I believe, is his collected pieces that were, was posthumously published. It brings together uh, Grace Notes, Leaping, a lot of his other shorter books. You know, if you want to read somebody who saw the best in this world and was able to make that into sentences that were really like uh, devotionals, I would check him out. Um, I've never read an essay by his and not either learn something or, or realized how Catholic faith can, can help to get me through the day and, and sort of see the, the good in the world, no matter how much of a struggle it might be. I gave that book to my mom for Christmas who had never read any of, of him. And she's a you know tough critic and just completely adores it and is sending me, uh, so, you know, segments from, from the book. And so, yeah, I can recommend that a favorite of moms, at least my mom, <laughs> Uh, is a, a top-notch Brian Doyle so good. I, his basketball writing also is like my favorite as a big basketball guy. Um, yes. Okay. Next category. Um, something to read out loud to young kids. I have um, I've learned with my I have twin daughters. It, if it has farm, animals, and snow and Christmas, it's like the ultimate mix. So there's this book Apple Tree Christmas by Trinka Hakes Noble. And it has like that perfect synthesis of all those things. There's animals, there's blizzards, there's Christmas. Like, so, I mean, that's the kind of book that I love to read to them. And, and um, you know, we have, a, we have a cat that has emerged from the woods behind our house that they have for better or worse started to take care of. Um, so it hits that points of like little kids and like bringing in, you know, animals that have you know sort of appeared from the wild. Do they do Christmas stuff like all year round? I know some kids get into that. Yes. It's like 24 seven Christmas in this house. basically. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So if you're looking for something again, as far away from a, a warm spring summer as you can get, uh, we can do some Christmas reading. Uh, okay. Second to last one, uh, something hilarious, something that will have me laughing. I think the crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon, which was his second novel. I think it's a hilarious book. And it's especially if you want to read something about kind of like another generation. It's 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 1960s Southern California. Um, it starts off with a suburban housewife who's staring at a television in a trance. 
and she becomes part of a, a multinational postal conspiracy. And uh, she discovers that there's kind of this offshoot of the Pony Express that has been running things from the Vatican to Southern California for the last 500 years. So it's like this wacky book. And he has such an odd, dark sense of humor that I think, uh, you know, I would go back to him to sort of have, you know, a laugh in this very strange time that we're in. <laughs> Sounds funny to me. Uh, okay, last one. Something that grapples with big questions of faith. I actually just got a book a few days ago in the mail. Um, it's The Lord of the Absurd. Uh, by Raymond Nogar, who was a Dominican priest. And it's a really interesting book. It starts off as a meditation on him giving speeches. He would go around the country and kind of give speeches. It's like the the era of like the public intellectual, and he would go and talk about Catholicism and evolution. And then halfway through the book, he kind of becomes metafictional or metacognitive about his speeches. That he asks himself, like, what am I actually doing here, talking to these people? Um, a priest talking about science, talking about theology in mixed company. And the book becomes kind of a complex consideration of how we envision God and reality. And, you know, it, it, there's an epigraph that he chose uh, for, for the book. And it's, it's taken from a poem by E. Cummings. And the epigraph reads, what's beyond logic happens beneath will, nor can these moments be translated. I say that even after April, by God, there is no excuse for May. So I'm reading this on April 21st in the weirdest time that I've ever experienced and that like a lot of other people have experienced. And it seems like the absolute perfect book. Um, what does it mean? to try to put God in sort of a human box and human conception? What if we accept the oddity and absurdity of, of, of religion and faith and, and be surprised by it? So I think that was a book that came to me um, by a recommendation by this writer, John Wilson, um, came to me at the perfect moment. And it's something that grapples with those big questions of faith. Well, this is a great list to start with. So we'll have us going for a few months at least, which we appreciate. Of course, we're all starting though, as a reminder, with Mariette and Ecstasy at the Jesuit Book Club. So do <laughs> do find us uh, there. I did want to close with this quote that you use in your book that you said. Uh, so it remind I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Andre, is it Dubus? Debut. Debut. Okay, so yeah. my French needs some work. Andre Debut, <laughs> uh, who's a, another writer again, uh, probably underappreciated, who, who's worth uh, talking about maybe in another podcast. But you said he was a teacher, uh, college teacher, and at the beginning of all his semesters, he would write like this statement on the on the blackboard. I don't know if it was his original one or if he was quoting somewhere, but uh, he said, "Art is always affirmative because it shows we can endure being mortal." That might sound like kind of a downer of a quote to endure being mortal, but I think at least at, th at this time anyway, I feel like a lot of us probably are enduring being mortal uh, and to have some art um, affirm us, affirm our existence to kind of guide us and accompany us on the way is something that's uh, much needed. So uh, again, thank you, Nick, for your book, for your work, for working with us in the, the book club, for other great recommendations. And uh, yeah, we'll continue to be chatting uh, throughout the month of May uh, over over in the Facebook group. Thank you. Great. I'm looking forward to it. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. 
Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. (laughs) ¶¶